0: You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. if you would take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter one, Hebrews chapter one. Last week, we began our journey through this sermonic letter, we could say, the book of Hebrews, a letter that is a word of exhortation to persecuted Christians. On the one hand, warning them of the disaster that will come if they abandon Jesus Christ, but also wooing them to Christ And wooing them to persevere in faith in Christ by revealing afresh his supremacy over all things. And right away, if you recall, the opening sentence of this letter, verses one to four, shows us the supremacy of Christ over all the prophets of old. For what God has spoken in these last days, he has spoken by his Son as God's final and fullest revelation. Jesus. In other words, it's the culmination of all that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. All of the Old Testament revelation was pressing towards this, the revelation of salvation through (laughs) Christ, who is both God's divine Son and God's messianic Son. That is, the one who is the second person of the Trinity. As we read last week in verse 3, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And at the same time, he's the one who took on a human body and soul as a son of David on this earth and who died to purify us from our sins and was raised and exalted to God's right hand. This one, the author says in verse 4, has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And in our passage today, this morning, the author expounds upon and expands the Son's superiority over the angels with a series of seven Old Testament quotations. So you're going to have to follow with me. Now I'm thinking about Old Testament text today because he quotes seven different texts. It's like a string of pearls that he strings together to reveal, even from the Old Testament scriptures themselves, superiority of the Son. So follow along with me. I'm going to begin then in verse five and read down to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 5. Hear now God's holy word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. A reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together again. Father of glory, please give us this morning the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ in this very passage, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened today, that we would see and know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints. What's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Open our eyes, O Lord, to see these things by faith today, that we would see the superiority of the Son. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, Open Doors International released their annual World Watch list. It's an organization that's keeping track of what's going on with the church, the worldwide church. And this this report reveals the countries in which Christians face the most severe persecution. Let me give you some of the highlights. At least 10,000 churches closed in China last year due to government persecution. 14,766 churches and Christian properties around the world were attacked which is a sevenfold increase from the previous year. And 4,998 Christians that we know of were murdered because they were Christians last year. In Nigeria alone is where 82% of those killings took place. And Nigeria actually remains the deadliest place in the world today to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the question. What is it that will enable the Christians in places like northern Nigeria to hold fast to their confession that Jesus is the Christ? What will enable them to resist the temptation to instead become a Muslim in order to escape persecution? What will keep them believing the revelation of Jesus Christ given to us in the Bible instead of turning to the Quran, which was allegedly given as revelation through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad? Or to put it into the context of our letter, what will keep these Jewish Christians holding on to the truth as it is in Jesus in the midst of their persecution instead of turning back to Judaism and the law that was delivered by angels in the Old Testament? Let's become more personal. What will keep you, what will keep me clinging to Christ in the face of the trials and persecutions that we go through? And the answer is this seeing and savoring the superiority of Jesus Christ, to see and savor his salvation over all others, to see his superiority over everything in the universe, including the angels, that we might cling to God's final revelation by his Son and not turn aside either to incomplete messages that were delivered through angels in the Old covenant or false messages supposedly delivered by angels like in Islam or in uh, Mormonism, who says that the Book of Mormon came from an angel, Morani, <laughs> showing Joseph Smith where the Book of Mormon was found. So how, then, will we see these things? It's by seeing Jesus in his glory. And that's what our author here in Hebrews is showing us in these seven Old Testament quotations, quotations that come from all portions of the Hebrew Bible, from the law, from the prophets, and from the writings, contrasting what God has said to and about his son with what God has said to and about the angels. And that's what we'll see. There's these contrasts with these different quotations. So that's what I want us to recognize, three contrasts that show us how Jesus is superior to the angels as, first, the exalted Son, in verses 5 and 6, secondly, as the eternal sovereign, in verses 7 to 12, and thirdly, as the enthroned Savior, in verses 13 and 14. He is superior as the exalted Son, the eternal sovereign, and the enthroned Savior. So let's start with this first contrast that Jesus is superior to the angels as the exalted Son. In verse 5, the author begins by asking this rhetorical question, for to which of the angels did God ever say? And of course, the question expects a negative answer to none of the angels. God never said these following things to angels. He only has said these things to the Son. And what is it that God has said to the Son? quotations, then, from two Old Testament passages put into the mouth of God the Father as what he has said to the Son. And the first quotation, as you may remember, comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7, a well-known coronation and messianic psalm where he says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, the author has already alluded to this psalm in verses one to four. You remember there in verse two, when he says the son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, which was an allusion to Psalm two, verse eight. So now he's coming back again to Psalm two and beginning this string of Old Testament quotations with that very psalm. Now, let me just remind you about the context of that psalm and its four movements, There's kind of four sections of three verses each in that 12-verse psalm. Verses 1 to 3, it's speaking about how the nations are raging and the rulers of the world are against the Lord and his anointed. They say, we don't want to be ruled by them. Cast our bonds apart. So they're rebelling against the Lord, against his anointed. The second movement, verses 4 to 6, then speaks about how the Lord is in heaven and he looks down and sees this. And what does he do? Shaking his boots? No, he laughs, a laugh of scorn and derision. And then he declares, I'm going to install my king on Zion, my holy hill, and you can do nothing to stop it. Then you get the third movement, and that's verses 7 to 9, where we hear the voice of the Lord's anointed himself. And this is what it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So you see, there's this declaration of sonship you are my son. And then there's this invitation ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And then there's a promise of victory over all of his enemies you will dash your enemies with a rod of iron. The psalm closes in the last movement, verses 10 to 12, calling then upon all of these nations that are raging, calling upon all the earth, saying, Serve the Lord with fear, O kings. Kiss the sun, and take refuge in him. Now this psalm, as it was uh, used in the history of Israel, was recited and sung usually at the coronation of one of the kings of Judah. And yet, it points beyond those sons of David, doesn't it? It points to great David's greater son, Jesus. For to him alone does God say these things in a full and final way, and to him alone were the nations actually given to him as a heritage. That cannot be said of any other son of David. So we know it is a messianic psalm pointing to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of it. But here's a question. He says in this, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the question comes, when did God actually say this to the son? After Jesus came up out of the water at his baptism, you may remember that the voice from heaven, God spoke audibly, and he said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There, God speaks these very words. This is my beloved Son. He is alluding to, on the one hand, Psalm 2, verse 7, as well as alluding to Isaiah 42. So that's one time in which it is said, by God to the Son. You can also remember that other amazing event in Jesus' life on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he's transfigured in his glory And again, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And in both baptism and transfiguration, it's an allusion certainly to Psalm 2-7 affirming that Jesus is the son of God. But I submit to you, it's not until the resurrection of Jesus and especially when Jesus ascends into heaven and he's crowned and at his exaltation to God's right hand, that God speaks these words to his son in a final and climactic way. That's when he actually says this, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. At his exaltation. In fact, this is the way that Paul uses this when he is preaching there in In Pisidian Antioch, in Acts 13, you remember how he's at the synagogue there, and he's going through the Old Testament and saying how it points to Jesus. And part of what he says is this, We bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, he speaks that as he raises Jesus from the dead, also as he crowns him uh, king forever. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, by his resurrection and in his ascension and there in heaven at the right hand of God in his coronation, He's declared to be God's exalted son. Now, of course, this does not mean that Jesus was not God's son before that time, obviously. Certainly, he has always been God's divine son. As we've said, the second person of the Trinity, which was emphasized back in verse 3 and will be emphasized again in the fifth and sixth Old Testament quotation we look at this morning. And Jesus was certainly God's son at his baptism and transfiguration. But here's the thing. He had not yet, at that point, proven himself to be the perfectly faithful and obedient son all the way to the end. Because that was the question. Adam was God's son, and he was unfaithful. Israel's called God's son in Exodus 4.22, and they were unfaithful. And now Jesus is declared to be God's son, but the question is, will he be faithful to the end? And Jesus was. He was obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's after this, by his resurrection and ascension, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Philippians 2. A name and an inheritance is given to him at that moment that's far superior than that of the angels. He is the exalted Son of God. This declaration of Jesus as God's Son at his exaltation would have been understood in Roman society, you see. In Roman society, when a son came of age, and if he was approved as a man by his father then he would be ceremonially received and bestowed with his name. He had the name when he was born, but as he grew and proved himself, in a sense, to be worthy of the name, the father would have a ceremony in which the name would be formally bestowed upon him and he would receive the full rights of the inheritance. That was what happened in Roman society, and that's what happened with Jesus. He is God's exalted son. Now, this exalted status is further supported by the second Old Testament quotation, which comes from what we read earlier in 2 Samuel 7.14, which he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. As we said, it's the prophet Nathan who spoke to King David in response to his desire to build a house for God's name, the temple. And instead, God says, no, no, I'm going to build a house for you, David, that is a dynasty in which David would always have an heir, and a future heir would actually build God's house. Now, in a certain sense, it was fulfilled, we could say typologically, through Solomon, David's son who built the physical temple in Israel. We know that temple is not the ultimate temple that this is talking about. That temple's been destroyed twice over. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one who's building the true temple of God, which is the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is Jesus Christ who was established on the throne of David forever. And it's to him, ultimately, that God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus and none other is God's exalted son. Now, in contrast to this, what does God say to the angels? We've heard what God says to the Son. What does He say to the angels? Verse 6. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. Well, this quotation likely comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. It's also an echo from Psalm 97, verse 7. But let's think about it from Deuteronomy 32. This is at the end of the Pentateuch, the end of those first five books, and it's the last verse of the Song of Moses. Before Moses is going to go up to the mountain and view the Promised Land and then die, he sings this song to Israel, this song given to him by the Lord. In the first part of the song, he talks about all of God's faithfulness to to Israel, what he's done. The second part of the movement of the song is talking about how Israel's been unfaithful and will be unfaithful. But this last part says that God will still be faithful despite Israel's unfaithfulness. And in fact, God will be so faithful that he's going to bring his people into the land of promise. Listen to the whole of this verse. It says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. That's the portion that's quoted in our passage in Hebrews. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. What's the point? It's a reference to praising God in the future for defeating all the enemies of God's people and for bringing them safely into that cleansed land, the land of promise. The line that's quoted is literally bow down to him, all gods, and it refers to the angels such that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's translated this way, let all God's angels worship him or bow down to him. You may remember that sometimes the word Elohim, which is translated God or gods, refers to angels at times. In the book of Job, the angels are called the sons of God in that sense. And so it's referring to these angels. And according to Hebrews, uh, God says to the angels, worship my Son." Now, the question is, when does God say this to the angels? Well, the answer, according to Hebrews, is when he brings the firstborn into the world. When he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, at first, you may think that this is referring to angels worshiping Christ at his incarnation, And certainly there were angels that were praising God at his incarnation. You know, remember to the shepherds who see them at night, and that's true. But two things point to this being at the time of Jesus' exaltation, at the time of his coronation in heaven, that God says this to his angels. The first is the language of firstborn. And in this context, it points to a son who receives an inheritance from the father. That's the inheritance is found throughout this whole first chapter. So that's the context of the language of firstborn. And you remember in the Old Testament, it's the firstborn who receives a double portion of the inheritance. So he's the firstborn who receives this inheritance is part of what's being said here. And he receives it, Jesus does, at his exaltation. In fact, this language of firstborn echoes Psalm 89. Psalm 89, one of those messianic psalms reflecting on the covenant promises of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Psalm 89, which is saying that, God, you will be faithful to your promises, won't you? And it speaks of this anointed one to come and says in Psalm 89, verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn." the highest king of the earth, the highest of the kings of the earth. So to make him the firstborn is to make him, in other words, king of kings and Lord of lords, to make him the exalted son once again. And of course, other New Testament passages speak of Jesus being the firstborn in relation to his resurrection and his coronation. Remember how Colossians 1.18 says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that word firstborn in this context is speaking about when he receives his inheritance, when that declaration is made. But secondly, notice that the word there is world. When he brings the firstborn into the world, that's not the usual word in Greek for cosmos that we think of as world. It's another word, a different word. It's a word that means the habitable land. It echoes what's said at the end of Deuteronomy thirty-two, forty-three, the cleansed land. And in fact, this same word is used in chapter 2, verse 5. Notice what it says in chapter 2, <laughs> verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In other words, when he says the word world here, he's speaking about the world to come. He's speaking about the heavenly world, the true promised land that the promised land of old points forward to, the place where Jesus is preparing for us, the place in which he entered by his resurrection and ascension to God's right hand, that heavenly country that will come down to earth when Christ returns. That's what it's talking about. And that fits with the ultimate fulfillment of what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 32. In other words, the point is this. When Jesus ascended into heaven and was enthroned at God's right hand, Jesus hears these words from God, you are my exalted son. And the angels hear this word from God, you worship him. Do you see the contrast? What does God say to the to to Jesus, you are my exalted son. What does he say to the angels? Worship him. That's what you're to do. And if angels, think about this, angels who are the most magnificent of God's creatures, right? So they're so awe-inspiring that even the apostle John was tempted and fell down and worshiped an angel. If they are to worship the son, how much more ought we? Therefore, we must repent of our worship or veneration of angels or anything else in creation, which we do every time we make an idol of a created thing. We worship a created thing instead of the creator when we do that. That's just like worshiping angels. Instead, we need to heed the words of the angel to the apostle John in Revelation 19 when he bowed down to worship. What did the angel say? You must not do that. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship Christ. So let us behold God's exalted son this morning, and let's worship him always. Jesus is superior to the angels as God's exalted son. But the second thing that we see is that Jesus is superior to the angels as the eternal sovereign. And this is what we have in verses 7 to 12. The eternal sovereign. This time our author begins with what God says about the angels. And then he'll say what he says about the Son. So what does God say about the angels? We see that in verse 7 as he quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now this psalm, We were to read through the whole of the psalm. We read through part of it this morning. This psalm is a creation psalm. It's speaking of how all that God has made looks to him. You remember how they look to him for his food? Everything that God has made looks to him. Now, in the Hebrew text of that psalm, what happens in verse 4 is it personifies the stormy winds and the lightning as the Lord's obedient messengers, serving his sovereign purposes, as one commentator put it. But the Greek translation of it identifies those messengers as angels. And so what it's doing is it's pointing to how angels are servants of God who execute God's divine commands with a swiftness of wind and a strength of fire. So in its original context, in one sense, it's, it's talking about how the winds and even lightning are servants of God. But in its Greek translation, it's saying that the angels are also servants of God, and they're so faithful to do what God says, they do it like the wind and even like the lightning. But the point is this. What is is the the author of Hebrews getting at with this quotation? He wants you to understand this. Angels are creatures. Just like the wind, just like the lightning is a created thing of God, angels are creatures. Magnificent creatures, yes, yes but creatures nonetheless who are servants of the Creator. They're creatures who serve the Creator. And that's what God says about the angels. But what does God say about the Son? And this is what he comes to in verses 8 to 12, two quotations. The first quotes from Psalm 45, verses 5 and 6. And God is saying this, that The son is the eternal sovereign king who is God. We sang Psalm 45 earlier. As I mentioned then, it's a royal wedding psalm that extols the the beauty of the bridegroom, the Davidic king. But it speaks to this Davidic son in terms greater than any merely human son uh, could ever be called. For the psalm itself calls this son God. Do you see that? Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. And that's spoken directly to this son of David. Your throne, O oh God. It's one of those psalms, like Psalm 110, that's pointing to the divinity of the son. The son is actually God. This God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who's on the throne Forever. Only this Davidic son can this truly apply. The one who is on David's throne forever and who is God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Davidic king who always rules with a scepter of uprightness and who perfectly loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Even David in his reign did not do that perfectly, did he? He didn't punish Absalom or Amnon as he ought to have done. He didn't punish his own sons as he ought to have done. He did not love righteousness enough and hate wickedness enough. No, only the Lord Jesus rules with perfect righteousness. You remember what we saw in our series in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is the one who does that. So much does he love righteousness and hate wickedness that he went to the cross. He hated wickedness that much. He loved righteousness that much that he goes to the cross to be the only truly atoning sacrifice for sinners. That God's righteous judgment against Christ's sinful people could be poured out upon him in our place so that God could be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's how much he loves righteousness. Truly, we could say this, he is a king after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And it's for this reason, because of what Christ did, that he is anointed with the oil of gladness, as it says. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This refers to the experience of the joy that was set before him. You remember later in Hebrews, it talks about how he goes to the cross despising his shame for the joy set before him. And this is saying he did that and then he experienced the joy, incredible joy, greater than anyone else. He's the happiest of all. (laughs) But this language of anointing also points to some of what this joy is. And here's what it is in the context of this chapter. It is that he receives his inheritance of the Holy Spirit. He's given the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the one who is the Messiah, the anointed one, is given the Spirit at his coronation to do what? To pour out upon his church, to make his church righteous subjects, to follow his righteous rule. And this was his joy. He delighted to pour out his spirit upon his people to make us righteous that we might serve our righteous king. You see the joy that he has as he receives that inheritance and pours it out on us. But not only this, yes, Jesus is the eternal sovereign king who is God, but he is also the eternal sovereign creator who is Lord. And that's shown in the sixth quotation which comes from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. You see it there where he says, "'You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, "'and the heavens are the work of your hands. "'They will perish, but you remain. "'They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. "'You will roll them up like a garment. "'They will be changed, but you are the same, "'and your years will never or will have no end.'" What's Psalm 102 about? Psalm 102 is actually a psalm of lament. And the first part of it is the psalmist lamenting the reality of human suffering, weakness, and changeableness, mutability, that is. For example, you have statements like this, Psalm 102, verse 3, For my days pass away like smoke, or verse 11, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. See how humanity just withers away. It's ephemeral. It does not last And he's grieving that reality, lamenting that truth, that death will come. But the psalmist derives comfort and hope from the fact that Yahweh is the creator. He is the God who is eternal and who does not change. And because that's true, he will therefore be faithful to all of his promises. Even after his people die, he will be faithful to them, is what the psalmist is saying. And therefore, the psalmist can dwell secure knowing that even in death, he will have hope because God is eternal and God will be faithful to keep his promise. And here in Hebrews then, this is a psalm that God the Father says about the Son, (laughs) that he, the Son, is the sovereign Lord who has laid the foundation of the earth. In other words, the Son is the creator God. Now, this is what was said earlier at the end of verse 2, where it says that the Son is the one through whom also he created the world. And he's pointing out by this quotation, though, though the created things will perish and they will change, not so the Son. The Son is the creator, and he will remain, he says. He is the same, and his years will have no end. Do you catch the contrast now? the contrast about what God says about angels and what he says about the son. About angels, he says they're creatures and they're servants, while the son is the creator and the king. The angels, as creatures, they can pass away. But as son, he's an eternal sovereign who's forever far superior to the angels. See, that's the contrast that he's making. And here's the question for you this morning. Does this not comfort your heart, dear Christian, to know that this is who your Jesus is? He is the eternal sovereign, the righteous king, the immutable creator, the one who is our Lord and our God. And that means there's nothing that your soul needs that he cannot and will not supply. It's not as though he'll stop being creator. It's not as though he will die and not be able to help you. Whatever trouble or difficulty or persecution you are experiencing, experiencing, it's not something that's beyond his power to help you or to sustain you through. There's never a time that he can or will fail you throughout your life on earth or even into eternity because he's eternal and he will always come to your aid. He will always keep his promises. As the writer of Hebrews says later, Jesus is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can completely trust him. Because he is the eternal sovereign. So we've seen he's the exalted Lord. We've seen he's the eternal sovereign. But lastly, Jesus is superior to the angels as the enthroned Savior. Verses 13 and 14. And the author closes this string of pearls once again with the same rhetorical question with which he began, and to which of the angels has God ever said? And Again, the answer is, of course, none of them. This is something he's only said to the Son. And then he quotes Psalm 110, which you remember he alluded to earlier at the end of verse 3 when he said, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here, in verse 13, Is the seventh and final climactic quotation. It's where Yahweh, the Lord, says to Adonai, my Lord, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that points to two important things that are the climax of this whole section we're looking at. First, it points again to Jesus' enthronement because it's talking about him sitting at God's right hand, right? But it's emphasizing a particular point about that enthronement, is that he is seated. He is seated as one who has completed the necessary work on earth for our salvation. That's what verse three notes. After making purification for sins, he sat down. It's the image of completed work. He's done it. Never to have to do it again. He's the enthroned As the one who has done all that's necessary, he offered the one and only sacrifice once and for all that makes sinners clean. The sacrifice of offering up his own blood to atone for the sins of his people. He never has or will make such a sacrifice again. Therefore, he's the seated one that's the enthroned savior. But that's not all. It's not as though this one who is seated on the throne is an inactive king who's just sitting around waiting for things to be done. No, that being seated on the throne means that he's been given all authority to rule in order to command and conquer all his and our enemies. And that's what he's actively doing now. You see... That's what it's saying in this second part of this quotation, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's pointing out to all the enemies being conquered. Who are the enemies of Christ? Well, it is the enemies of the world in rebellion against him who refuse to repent. They remain enemies of Christ, and they will be conquered, put down, destroyed by Christ. There's also the enemies of sin, even of our own sinful flesh that remains, and that too will ultimately be conquered. There's, of course, the enemy of Satan and of his legions of demons. And you see, Christ is an enthroned Savior who is actively conquering them to bring about the consummation and fullness of our salvation. So what was mentioned in verse 3 where he says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he does that, he carries things forward to bring all of creation to its appointed end and goal, which is a new heavens, a new earth, where his sanctified, glorified people dwell with him forever. Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. Jesus presently reigns as the enthroned Savior. But what about the angels? our author closes with this final rhetorical question in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is a rhetorical question that this time is expecting the answer yes. Yes, that's all that angels are. The angels are not the enthroned Savior, but echoing what was said back in verse 7, they're ministering spirits. They're servants. They're sent out to serve. They are servants. The Son is the enthroned Savior. He is superior to them as the King who actually commands them. They obey His commands. That's the contrast. But here's the most astounding thing of this whole passage to me. What does Jesus command and send them to do? He commands the angels to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Isn't that amazing? Our enthroned Savior sends his angels as ministering spirits to minister to us. Let that sink in, that today, from heaven, at God's right hand, Christ commands his angels to come and minister to you. to those of us who've confessed him as our Lord, as our Savior. So one commentator says, The angels of the Lord are sent to minister protection and deliverance to the elect of God in their earthly struggles and all the way home to our heavenly inheritance. You can think about this throughout Scripture, how the Lord sends angels for Daniel's sake to protect him, to close the mouths of the lions in the lion's den. Or how in Acts chapter 5, the the Lord sends from heaven these angels who release the apostles from prison. Or in Acts chapter uh, 12, how the Lord sends an angel to wake Peter up and to cause him to be released from prison to escape the clutches of Herod who is going to kill him. And the reality is Christ still sends his angels to minister to us, though we may not be aware of it. He sends them in order to help us to be faithful in the work he's called us to do as his servants and to persevere to the end and arrive all the way home. Namely, to arrive into our inheritance, the ultimate promised land, the world to come, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, the inheritance that Jesus has already received and that he will bring us into at the final consummation. That's the point. If this one who is the son, has already received the inheritance and he is ruling in order to make sure that you will receive the inheritance, then what do you have to fear? Why would you ever turn back? Why would you turn to something that's lesser and that can't save you? This is the son. Do you see now how superior the son is to angels? That's the point that you're supposed to get. That though angels are mighty creatures and servants of God, They cannot save you, dear Christian. They did not die for you. They cannot command all of providence to work out for your good and for God's glory to bring you finally into heaven. But the Son, the exalted Son, the eternal sovereign, the enthroned Savior, he can and does. He did die for you, for your sins. And he is ruling over all things to bring about the completion of our salvation and the enjoyment of the new heavens and new earth. And that's why he's been given the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My final question is this. Have you bowed the knee to this exalted son? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in him? Have you confessed that this Christ is your hope, your salvation? If not, the good news is you can today. You don't have to wait. Children, you don't have to wait till you get older. Not a day older. Not for another birthday to come. You can do it right now, today. Cry out to the Lord for mercy and say, Save me from my sins. I put my trust in this exalted Savior, and he will come, and he will save you. Today can be the day of your salvation through the Son. And if you already have, the exhortation in closing is this. See the Son afresh in all his glory. Savor him as your Lord and your King. Worship him together with the angels. Serve him with the same fervency and obedience as the angels. And follow your enthroned King into the battle. Because today we are still the church militant. We need to listen to the voice of Christ our Captain knowing that our hope of eternal salvation is secure in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your holy word in all its richness and beauty and glory, its oneness, and most of all, its revelation of our Savior. We thank you that you have, again, in your kindness, shown us who Jesus really is. And Lord, we ask that all would have the eyes of their hearts open today to believe, to rejoice, to be amazed at such a son of God. Lord, do this work, we pray. Help us to be faithful now and for the rest of our lives and forever. For the glory of your name, we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit CBTseminary.org.